If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one right to you. I want you to open them up to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. It's John chapter 1. We pick it up in verse 14, if I remember correctly. In part one, we read, by the way, there was this logic, this purpose, this reason for all life, this reason for existence, this purpose for life and living was not only with God, but was God himself. And this God was life, and this life was everything we were searching for. And in that life, there was all the truth that I was seeking, that man would seek. And this same truth, giving life, giving God, made everything, including me, including you, was made by him and for him. And this light, this truth broke through the darkness and the darkness had no say in the matter. Darkness could match it at all. As a matter of fact, it couldn't even land a punch. And there was a human being like us. And he was sent by God like us and his name was John. Not like us in that sense, but otherwise. And he entered into the evidence pool to be available to testify as a witness at any time he was called upon. And the goal was that through him, all would believe he wasn't the destination. He was simply the root there. He was only a witness. He was only evidence. And that same God in whom was life and whom was all truth has a, has a loving father who willingly and freely adopts to all who would receive his son something we could never do in and of our own merit or strength, regardless of how hard we tried. The same reason and purpose and so forth manifested. And that's what we see now in our text, starting in verse 14. Read along with me, if you would, please. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me was preferred before me, for he was before me. Of his fullness... And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for the life in this room, the little, precious little lives, Lord, but also every life in this room and how you desire to interface, to speak, to draw us in and captivate us and speak to us in a way that we get today, Lord, that we understand today that makes so much sense and profoundly affects us. So do more than just inform us, inspire us and transform us, God, I pray, and motivate us to move and to live in the manner in which you've called us, Lord not just for this moment, but Lord, for the rest of eternity. Lord, let today be a day when milestones are made. Lord, when landmarks are established. Lord, when, when more than just a conviction or a commitment, Lord, but that, that that commitment would last, Lord, and that it would be something that our hearts and our minds and our spirits make that cling us to you, that, that cleave us to you, Lord, in such a way that today you are glorified and we could learn how to live in the delight of your delight. So, Lord, have your way now, I pray. Redeem every second. Have your way, Lord, please, and minister. May we have so much fun in your word and be captivated in it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. On this communion Sunday, like any, please search the scriptures and let the Bible be the same. Well, you can learn a lot about a king, by the way, by where and how he chooses or desires to make his home. If you consider the fact that the farther he chooses or desires to, to make his home from his subjects may show the less interest he may have in them or the less the desire he has in engaging or interfacing in them or with them. Now, many people, if you will, treat God that way. They treat God as this or the God that they view as someone so distant and so, you know, really aloof and really uninvolved or unintentionally or unintentionally uninvolved, uninterested in humankind, that they have to do something to get his attention in their merit and in their efforts and in their hard work and in all of this stuff with this idea that if they could just do enough, maybe this guy will peek over his shoulder for a moment or gal or whatever they want to call it. And, and, and somewhere in all of that, they'll just hope that maybe he'll give them an interest. And so the question really is, where is he? And what in the world is he doing? Well, he's there. And then we actually say, well, that placement of wherever this king chooses or desires to make his home also shows his accessibility. I ask then, in regards to that, in that home, how approachable is this king? How available is this king? Well, that tells me an awful lot. Now, can we boldly approach his throne as the Bible tells us we can with our God in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Is his scepter always extended as we read, for instance, in Esther 5 or in Psalm 45, 6? Now understand, when a person approaches a king, he has two options with his scepter in his hand. He either retracts it, and if he retracts it, what he's saying is, that person's a threat, kill him. Or he extends it, which is called a scepter of rightness, in which case then what he's saying is, you are welcome here. And what it tells us in Psalm, and we see that, of course, in Esther. Well, in Psalm 45, 6, it says, your scepter or your throne, O God, is the scepter of righteousness, is always or perpetually a scepter of righteousness. In other words, God is perpetually holding out that scepter saying, you are always welcome. I challenge you to find that in some other book of theology. Are we approaching him anonymously as some sort of, sort of minute speck among an innumerable amount of other specks or as sons and heirs as we read, for instance, with David and Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9 or in Romans 8:17, where it tells us we've been adopted and God has poured his spirit of adoption in our hearts by which we cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. Do we really see our place... And when we got to this kingdom, is it accessible to the point where we can possibly approach it or even more so as Jesus tells us here in John 14 two, in my father's house are many dwellings or mansions. And then he says, I go and prepare a place for you that I may come back and receive you to myself that there where I am, you may be also. Do you realize that this great king is not only preparing a place He's preparing a place for us to dwell with him for eternity. Talk about an accessible king. Our God is so the opposite of what other people see in a king, where they see somebody unapproachable, aloof, uninterested, and as if we were created at best for their entertainment. And yet what we read is that God, from the very beginning, has always desired to be with man. He is the initiator. He is in every way the illuminator and the intimator with mankind from God walking in the cool of the garden in Genesis chapter three, verse eight, where what we see is we see a God just like his dad. Um, we, we see a God who desires to be with man 
to this place where God pulls them out of Egypt in Exodus and then says in Exodus 25, 8, now make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God's deliverance of you was not simply so you could wander around in the wilderness. It only makes sense that God would desire to be with you. And in desiring to be with you, the ultimate, you know, in essence, the ultimate destination would be a place of great fruitfulness. So don't miss this. Everywhere we read in scripture, there's always this desire for God to be with his people. Exodus 29 verse 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will be their God. When the temple is finally made, Solomon dedicates that in first Kings chapter six, before it's made, but on its well, God says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake them. My people, Israel. And we get all the way to the end of the book in the book of revelation, chapter 21, verse three, where it says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. He will be their God and they will be his people. And I get this, that from the very beginning to the very end, all God really wants is to be with you. The reason he deals with sin is it's what's in between. The reason he deals with your guilt is it's, what in, it's what's in between. The reason he deals with the problems in our personality, on our selfish reliance, on our self-centeredness and our egocentrism is because those things get in the way of the relationship between us and him. And what we read in our text now is this idea of what it would be like if God chose then to go in, go camping with us. If God chose then to build his place among us, what would that place look like? And that's really kind of what we get to in this text. And I kind of get the idea that if he really wanted to build this place and it was all about his glory, he would have adorned it with pomp and grandeur. It would have been huge and engulfed in majesty. If it was about his superiority, he would have put it up on a hill to cast a shadow on everyone else, demanding that his followers had to ascend to encounter him. If it was about his wealth, he would bedazzle the place and cloak it with all kinds of beauty and majesty. And yet in all of these things that I see, Isaiah makes really clear the kind of person Jesus would be when he chooses his flesh. I know, consider the fact that God's different from us in the sense that he was the one person who could pick his tent. Now, we're probably aware of this fact, and if not, let me uh, make this clear. You are not a person with a soul. You are a soul with a body. The body's temporary. Now, for some of us, the older we get, more hallelujah comes into that. But you are a soul. Your soul's what's eternal. That's the part that deserves investment. The external portions, well, that's another story altogether. The external portion is that which is going to come and go like anything we can see. But there is a soul in a simplest sense. There is a soul in a tent. There is a Felicia soul inside a Felicia body. That Felicia soul lasts forever. That's the beauty of it. And in every one of us, that soul is the issue. Now, imagine if that soul had a chance before the body was made to actually handpick the body. Would you pick the body you're in? I see Hugo nodding. I'm a little nervous. About it. Um, you know, and, and the reason I say that is, is there are changes you would make? I mean, if God were to say, well, let's face it. The, the thing is, our bodies are constantly changing. Would you have said, okay, this is what I want to look like at 12. This is what I want to look at. I mean, I don't really care about one or two. I mean, nobody knows whether you're a boy or a girl, you know, when you're first born. But, well, never mind. Um, but, you know, you get to 13. Okay, well, can I not have zits, please? Could I actually, could my voice crack in a day and change? You know, could I, could I... Can I get strapped and could my body be bigger and stronger and could I be fully healthy and never be sick? I mean, think the things that we choose. In the essence of it all, the only person who actually had an opportunity to choose their tent was Jesus. Think that through. You didn't, I didn't. There were certainly things I would change. But to be honest, the great news is all the things that I would change are all in the temporary dwelling anyways. 
It's like you're renting a place or you're in the hotel and you know sooner or later you're going to be checking out. You could try to decorate the hotel room all you want, but the hotel room is still a temporary dwelling. And you could try to make it, and you'll make it home if you're going to be there for a while, and you're going to try to make it comfortable, and you get familiar with things. But in the end of it all, it's still going to be a checkout day sooner or later, and you know that. You've got to sell by date, whether you like it or not. And sooner or later, there's going to be an expiration. There are a certain number of breaths, and you will have used them. But Jesus chooses his body, creates every cell. God had already made that clear prior to this point that all things were created through him. That includes the body he's going to dwell. What kind of body would you choose if you were going to be Jesus? This is the king coming to earth. And you realize the same thing we could learn about a king's dwelling is the same thing we could learn about Jesus with his body. He could have, I mean, we even draw him that way. First of all, I do love the fact that they always try to make him look like a surfer. Have you noticed that? He's got the perfect long hair. He's got the great tan. He's got the chiseled cheeks. And he's buff and built. And then I read Isaiah, and everything kind of changes. Because Isaiah tells, tells us, by the way, for what it's worth, in Isaiah 53, 2, so you can check up on this, it says that he had no form or comeliness. You know what form is? That's the way his, that was his shape. Comeliness was the part, like his face. In other words, if you looked at Jesus, you wouldn't go, whoa, baby. Let's face it, if anyone in this room is going to tell you that if they had a choice to pick, they wouldn't pick those things. They lie to you. But somewhere down the line, he didn't. Ha- he was not buff. They say, "Well, he was a builder. He was a lumberjack. He was a you, you know he was a carpenter. Certainly, he had to be big and buff." Isaiah says, "No, that's not going to be the case. He's not going to be big and burly. Is he going to be bearded? Probably. He was Jewish. At least the body he chose was Jewish." Was he taller than everyone else? Unlikely. Was he, you know, was, you know, and then the, the, the things, right? Did he levitate when he walked? Did he, did angels sing when he spoke? Did he have that gold? Who invented the gold plate thing anyways? You ever wonder that? Somewhere, you know, in the Renaissance, I blame the French, by the way. But, or somewhere between the two of you. But it's, you know, it's like, well, clearly if someone's really holy, a gold orb sits on your head. And so then they think, well, that must, well, if all of those things were the case, then why did Judas have to kiss him to identify him? Just wait for the guy that glows in the dark. Look for the eight-foot guy. Look for the guy with the gold plate on his head. You don't have to. You can arrest him. Just shoot. I mean, he's easy to find. He's the one who's glowing. Shoot at that. I mean, think of how easy that would be. Why is it that when they want to stone Jesus, he just sort of disappears amongst the crowd? Dare I say it? He looked just like everybody else. You put a hood on him. He's got a beard and a mustache. And sooner or later, all those beard and mustaches, and I'm not trying to be cruel, start to look the same with the kind of covering and so forth. And Jesus just looks like you can't throw rocks at all of them. And the reason I say that is Jesus chose a different form than any of us would for a very important reason. And that is because this king desires to be with us. And if he was any of those things, well, consider the fact he would be less approachable. If it was about his glory, he would have been adorned with pomp and grandeur. He would have had the gold plate. He would have levitated. He would have been eight feet tall, enormous and glutted in majesty. We would have expected that. If it was about his superiority, he would have been taller and massive, more massive than everyone. And people would be like, don't mess with that guy. Look at how huge he is. If it would have been about his wealth, imagine how the family he could have chosen to be born in. But instead, he picked the most dysfunctional family he could find where there's rumors about whether or not the daughter was even uh, faithful before marriage. And in all of that, 
and made him approachable even by his enemies. You need to re- recognize that. Can I just dare say this? Buff people are intimidating. Beautiful people are intimidating. There's something about that that people are afraid to approach. Ugly people, dare I say it, nobody's intimidated by them. People don't look and go, well, you know, you, I'm just kind of, I feel kind of insecure around you because you're so ugly. I mean, and I'm not trying to be mean. The whole point of it is, is God made that choice because the king wants to be with us. And to be with us, he really wanted to be on every point and level approachable. So when we get into our text, and it'll be relatively quick in this, understand the whole point of this is that John is recounting 60 years ago his encounter with God in the flesh. And God chooses to camp among us, clothe himself in flesh. And John got to look at that. And he goes, you know, I'm still in awe of the fact that God chose it this way. God chose a very simple, approachable, unintimidating form. So nobody would be intimidated to come. It tells us in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have the word skenaho. Try that word, skenaho. Skenaho literally means to pitch a tent, to tabernacle, a temporary dwelling. And it is the word that is used here for dwell. There are other words like meme, which means to remain, or istimi, which means to stand. There are other words that mean dwell. But this particular word means, in the simplest sense, went camping, pitched a tent. And what we read is, is that God himself, this word that was with God, that is God, the whole meaning and purpose of life wrapped up in God form is now choosing to tent among people and that's what john is telling us in this verse and i get it because in hebrews 2 14 it says inasmuch as the children have partaken in flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that's the devil and by the way free all those who all their life were subject to the bondage of their fear of death see in other words for jesus to pay our bill he had to clothe himself in our kind of flesh to do so Amen. That's what I hear out of that. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've ordained praise and strength. Okay, so don't miss me in this. The whole idea of the kinsman redeemer from Ruth tells us that you have to be of like mind to pay the bill. And in that same way, you recognize God had to clothe himself in flesh to pay the bill of mankind. And that's the point of this, that this whole purpose of life, this meaning, this reason for existence, clothed himself, went camping, and he clothed himself in flesh, in humankind. And then we read this, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I love the way that this starts. Now, John is recalling this, looking back 60 years ago. And as he does, he goes, you know, I touched God, I smelled God, I inspected God, I heard God, I listened to God. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And John looks at all of this with the glory and majesty 60 years later. And it wasn't about how, he doesn't say, I mean, think about it. The only physical description we get of Jesus is going to be in the book of Revelation when Jesus is at home. Until then, every description is going to be about, other than what Isaiah foretells, it's going to be out about the inside. Now, <clears throat> let's say we're all going camping and somewhere in all of that, something strange happens. The queen decides she wants to camp with us. Or just to make it more fun, the queen and Philip because he just sounds like a really fun kind of guy. And the two of them pitch a tent. Where would they pitch the tent? Would they pitch it among us? 
Well, they pitch it somewhere on a hill far away from us, covered in secret service. Perhaps with our group, who even knows? Well, Daniel, and just maybe she would have some secret service. But, I mean, the reason I say that is, is then somewhere down the line, one of us, well, that will be me, other than maybe others of you as well, are going to want to go and figure out where that place is and go and investigate. And somewhere down the line, and I could see, actually, I could see Maureen doing this too. I'd be like, hey, Maureen, you want to go and check out, see if the queen's in her tent? Let's go and see. I'm sure Maureen's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Yeah. So, you know, and so we kind of crawl around the hill and we kind of peek in. But there's the point. What John is telling us here in all of this, notice the terms are full of that we're going to see here is that John got to do more than view the tent. And maybe we see the tent from a distance and what we see is a glow. We clearly see there's a light emanating from it. We clearly see that the tent is different, but the tent is different from the inside, not the outside. And we're kind of amazed. We're amazed that when we stand, we're like, you know, that tent looks a lot like ours. That really seems kind of odd. I mean, I would think this tent would be so much different than ours. When God, by the way, had, had the tabernacle be made in uh, Exodus 25, it was to be, by the way, in the center of the camp. It wasn't to be on one side so someone got an advantage over another. And the idea was, because it was the center, no matter what tribe you were from, all you had to do was go inward and you could find him. As a matter of fact, I find it interesting. At one point, there's a whole group of people complaining and God fries them. And what we read is he fries the outskirt of the camp. Why the outskirt? It's the ones that are the farthest away from the center. It seems to me that's where the complaining would be. So we go and we, we, we get to go and we, we're kind of looking and it's bright and it's okay, wow, man, there's really something going on in there. Not necessarily in our tents, but we're going, okay. And we get a little bit closer and we get a little bit closer and all of a sudden you hear a voice on the inside say, hey, you want to peek in? Well, maybe that voice just is in my own head because I'm kind of that way. You know, hey, you want to, we should peek in, we should peek in, should we peek in, should we peek in? And we peek in and when we peek in, what do we see? Because that tells us a lot. Now look at what John does. Because what John's telling us here is that very same thing. When he says, we beheld his glory. We beheld glory. Now glory, doxa, means something. The, the, the truth of who a person really is. I got to see what this person was really like. And you know why I got to see what this person was really like? Because this wasn't about a photo op. It wasn't about an article about them. It was that they pitched their tent among us. And I got to go and peek in the tent. And he tells us it was the glory of the only begotten. Now, let me make this clear. There are those who try to prove that Jesus isn't God, and I don't even want to say who because I don't want to start dissing a group of people that just want to witness about Jehovah. But anyways, but in all of that, they'll try to say, well, look at begotten, and begotten must mean made. Well, actually, the word only begotten is the word monogenes. Mono means one. Genes, like generation or gene, means means in the simple sense use the word gene there what it says for an only begotten means that of all the creatures in eternity there is only one person of the father's gene pool and if he's of the father's gene pool he's of the father's species now we have two children they're obviously very very different one of them is of our gene pool. Both of them are in one way or another of our personality. And that is, you should pray for both of them for that. But because of that, we could say, well, there was one. If you want to see what we're like physically, you would have to look at one. To be honest, if you want to see what we're like almost more emotionally, you might find it from the other in some, in some cases. The point is, is that when, when John is telling us this, he's going, man, I saw somebody that so represented God that the more I stared, the more I knew God from. And he goes, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And the first thing he tells us here is full of grace and truth. So when John looked in the tent, you know what John saw? John looked in the tent and he saw grace. Now, what is grace? 
Grace is a gift. It is kindness that is given to others who don't deserve it. We'll never deserve grace. That's the beauty of it. Instead of deserving it, we actually focus on the fact that it's not the, re- the deservedness of the, of the receiver, but rather the kindness of the giver. We see how kind God is. And the more I see how undeserving I am, the more I see how kind God is. But he looks, and when John peeked in, he says, man, there is kindness when I looked inside. I saw kindness. I saw a kindness that wanted to give and wanted to give to those who didn't deserve. Now imagine, back in our story, Maureen and I are standing at the tent, we're peeking, and all of a sudden, there's a person, and let's say, let's just make it fun, it was Will and Cater in there. And Will and Cater are in there, and they're like, hey, who are you guys? And Maureen's like, uh, my name is Betty. You know, <laughs> she just doesn't want to get in trouble. And I'm like, that's Maureen, I'm Pastor Tony. And they're like, oh, well, why don't you come on in? We'd really like to spend some time with you. We have some things we'd like to give you. And I'm like, and of course, Maureen's thinking, let's just stay. And I'm like, I should go tell everybody else. And well, how much do you want to give? Well, look, at, we have an abundance. We just want to give to everyone. Could you imagine what we would want to do? I mean, we have two options. One is, I just want to live in this tent now, hang out with Will and Kate. And the other one is, well, I want to go tell everyone else. And that's the whole point of this. He looks and he goes, and when I looked, when I got to see inside, you know, I saw, I saw a kindness and a grace that was so profound. And that was the first thing. He didn't see, he didn't see anger or vengeance or judgment as his first thing. What he saw was kindness. But he also saw truth. Notice it says, full of, literally abundant in grace and truth. Now, here's the danger, beloved. Please hear me. Compassion and kindness can often come at the expense of truth. Because we try to be kind and we try to be loving, but we don't tell people the truth sometimes. And what we're doing is we're being more cruel than kind. So what happens is someone kind of wants, they, they want to vent on you. They want to kind of blow off on you, you know? And it's like they had a rough day. And so they want to kind of go. And, and what they're doing is they're fueling up a reason for them to do something stupid. You know, so let me tell you about my day. And oh, that person, who does he think he is being that way? And let me tell you about that. And my boss, and oh, and the money the government's trying to charge me. And, they, and they're rolling all this thing up into a ball so they can throw it in a hoop and say, therefore, I'm just going to sin tonight. Because, you know, ultimately where you're going to go with it is, well, then where's God in all of this? And we're going to be kind and we're going to be soft-shouldered. I'm going to warn you, sympathy can often come at an expense. So what happens is we're kind of patting them on the back. Oh, that's so bad. That's so bad. Yeah, I don't know why God would do that to to you and then ultimately and then you're like thank you you've been such a true friend and then they go do something stupid instead of being able to say whoa 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 stop right there i agree your day must have been rough i agree you may have felt like you got the short end of the stick but stop blaming god for that because he is so sovereign and he's going to make good out of this and you need to trust him that's a real friend but it is a harder place to be let's be honest and to find a place where you can balance one with the other, it seems like the more grace you offer, the less truth there is. Or the more truth you offer, the less grace there is. And yet, what we find here is that he was abundant in both. That my God didn't have a problem being absolutely honest and truthful, completely right and true, and yet he was still totally kind in doing so. That means he looked in the tent and he's like, wow, what in the world is this? So John then says, listen to this. Verse 15, John bore witness of him. John cried out and he said, This is he of whom he who comes after me. I said, he who comes after me was preferred before me because he was before me. John says, if you will, John peeked in the tent and you know what John saw? He saw eternity. John looked in this humble tent 
that was an unimpressive to look at from the outside. But when he peeked on the inside, John the Baptist says, I saw eternity. This is the guy. Now, interesting, when you read the Gospel of Luke, one of the things we discover is, is that John the Baptist, chronologically on earth, was six months older than Jesus. We know that because if you remember, John's mother gets pregnant, Mary gets pregnant six months later to go visit her aunt, and then as she does, she waits three months in their month, and she has, unless the baby was born premature, that means that what we have, or late, is what you have is, is that John the Baptist chronologically on earth, John's tent, the Baptist's tent, was six months older than Jesus' tent. And yet John would say, this person was before me. And the reason's simple. Because the person who dwells in the tent, the soul, the real person, well, that person, on the other hand, that person was eternal. Now, are you aware of the fact that the scripture makes clear that we actually have a beginning? Our souls are not eternal in the past. That God actually knit your soul together as you were being born, or I should say, as you were being made in your mother's womb. Are you aware of that? You don't have an eternal past, but you do have an eternal future. That's kind of a fun. The only one who has an eternal past is God. Angels have a beginning. We have a beginning, but God never had a beginning, which leads me to a whole bunch of questions I want to ask him when we get to heaven. You know, like, so what were you doing all those years or whatever you want to call them before you made the universe as we know it? You hanging out? Did you do this before this? I mean, there's there's so many questions, but the point of it all is this, is that John looks and when he peeks in the tent, he sees eternity there. Now, this is what we got so far. We have John the writer and John the Baptist. Both of them, in essence, have been able to peek in the tent. And when they peeked in the tent, what they saw was grace, truth, and eternity. That's what they saw. In a very humble, unimpressive shell. And so it tells us then, in verse 16, that same tent, that same person, of his fullness, or literally of his abundance, we've all received grace, for grace. Now, please don't miss this. Because what that means is, somewhere in this, he has more than he needs, so what does he do with it? The question is, what about you? Well, God's not going to give you just enough. Have you learned that yet? God has this habit of giving abundance. That's part of the fun. It's just so natural to take that then and just go, well, I might as well make that my nest egg. God gave me more love than I needed. Well, then I'll just store that. You know what happens when you eat and you don't use the energy that was given you there and you store it, you become fat. And with that fat, you get lazy. You get tired easy. And the simplest things before become a lot more difficult. Like you went from tying your shoes to making the noise to tie your shoes, to not finding your shoes when you look down. Now, the reason I say that, I'm not looking at you guys and saying, look at all y'all getting fat. The point is, is that there's a certain amount that needs to be exercised. That abundance can be detrimental unless it's actually used. There is nothing God gives you that's just enough. He gives you an abundance because in that abundance, what he wants to do is for you to go and spill it on others. 
So you ask for joy and he gives you an abundance of joy so that you can actually go and irritate that person next to you. Now, that's not the end goal, but it's, you know, because they don't want you happy because you have Jesus and they know that means you should be miserable because if you really are happy, then Jesus must be real. And you're like, oh, God is so good. And then something weird happens and you still have joy because it isn't going to suck it out of you. Happiness maybe, but joy, no. And then they look and you realize like, look, I just want to give you some of this joy because I have more than I can hold on to. And peace and forgiveness. Because of the abundance of forgiveness he's lavished upon us, how could we not start lavishing it upon others? And I start to think, well, wait a minute. Kindness, truth, eternity. Would they see that if they looked in our tents? Would they see an abundance of it? Because it says, from out of this abundance, we've received Because he is so rich in this, because he is so overflowing in this, I've had the privilege of receiving. And because I've had the privilege of receiving in abundance, following his lead, I want to then take that and so someone else could say, out of the abundance that Pastor Tony has received, I've received. Isn't that what Paul says? That which I first received, I give to you. And he goes, you know what? And grace for grace. You know what that means? That means we don't give because someone deserves it either. If I'm going to follow his lead. But grace for grace, literally, by the way, and what that means literally is grace against grace. What that means is you give to someone, they don't deserve it. And then you don't go, box ticked, who's the next person? You continue to give grace. Grace upon it. Grace against it. And John looks in an amazement. He's like, do you realize that God gave me what I didn't deserve? And then he gave me more and I didn't deserve it. And he gave me more and I didn't deserve it. The moment, every time I peeked in the tent, it's like I saw more of this and more of this and more of this. And I could not run out. He goes, let me tell you why. For Oti, the verse, verse 17, because if you looked in Moses' tent, that's not what you would have seen. What it tells us is that the law came through Moses. The very thing that the Jewish people were holding on to try to be right with God show them that they actually need to get right with God through one who can offer grace, and that's God himself. He goes, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth. Remember, it says already out of his fullness, we've received those grace and truth. Now we look at this and you realize he's like, these are your two options. Please hear me. Somewhere down the line, you're going to go to one of those two tents to be right with God. On one side, you're going to go look back at the law, the law, your good works, your mitzvot, those things that you think you've done that are going to be good enough. And on one side, that's where you go with. So on one hill, if you will, there's Moses' tent, and you could go stand by Moses' tent. But I want to remind you something about Moses. How many things did we read that Moses really blew in the wilderness? Do you remember how many accounts we have of Moses really blowing it? One. One was it. Moses at one point was told to strike a rock because the people were thirsty and for good reason. They were, you know, it was the desert and they were, hadn't drunk anything. And so he struck the rock like God had informed him to do, to do so. And in that water gushed out and everyone was able to drink. But the second time they get around to the same situation, they've gone full circle. God says, no, don't strike the rock this time. Just talk to it. And you would imagine, hey, any man doesn't have a problem hitting a rock. As a matter of fact, You'll find kids hitting rocks with sticks all the time. You don't have to tell them that, that water is going to gush out. They'll happily do that. 
Matter of fact, you just give him a kid a stick and he's going to hit something with it if he's a boy. Well, well, consider the fact that, but the second time when you tell someone, no, I need you to talk to that rock, well, that's a little weirder. And you could see Moses really going, okay, this is, this is it. How long are we going to have to put up with you? As if Moses were representing God. Boy, are we frustrated. Boy, I'm telling you, God and I have had it up to here with you. You are so, you are on our last nerve. And God is like, yo, Mo, pull. You were not representing us. You were misrepping us. That one mistake, well, that one act of rebellion, and Moses doesn't go into the promised land. You're aware of that, right? And there's the danger. The problem with going to Moses' tent means you, got, you better be perfect. Because the moment you blow it, you're not going in. And there's the danger. And he says, on one side, the law did come through Moses. Now, that same law tells me that there is someone who could come and redeem me. But if I want to stand on this, I have to stand on completely on my own merit. And it better be perfect. Because perfection is the way God does things. And that's the standard he's going to hold us to. So on that side of it, he goes, you can go and choose that tent and stand with Moses and say, and look at, people might not say Moses. As a matter of fact, some would actually be furious you use his term there. But the, in the bottom line, no matter what the religion is, it's still the tent of Moses because it's their work. I pray enough, I gave enough, I made hajj, I was kind enough, I gave to people, and you know, I prayed this, and I said this, and I, I, you know, and I was kind enough, and I was a vegetarian, you know, and I made sure that I was hugging everyone, and I ran around in an orange coat, you know, and I played my bongo as we ran down the street at Oxford, or whatever it was, but somewhere in all of it, you're still standing at the tent of Moses, because when God were to say, if God were to stand there and say, why should I let you in, you would say, because I, that's the whole point of Moses, isn't it? Because I, because I gave, because I made my trip, because I did this, because I did that. And the whole world is trying that. But grace and truth came through Jesus. Because on that side of things, what we have is, God would say, why would I let you in my home? And you'd say, because you love me. You sent your son to die for me. And he paid my price. He did all the work. So what tent do you want to stand on today? And you say, well, I've already said yes to Jesus. This is kind of a moot point. It's not a moot point because when you read the book of Galatians, what you find is there's so many who've started in the spirit and tried to end it in the flesh. It's like now that you're his, what are you doing? Are you investing in the relationship? Or are you going back over to the tent of Moses at this point and just trying to do stuff as if somehow now God saved you so you could work for him? Well, how does that make a relationship good? So it ends with verse 18. He says, no one's seen God at any time. In fact, God would say, if you see me, you die. Which I'm okay with, by the way. Let the old man die. But the only begotten son, there's our term again, monogenes, was at the bosom of the father. He has declared him. In the end of it all, by the way, for what it's worth, I do love the fact he says he was in the bosom of the father because it's the term John would use about him being in the bosom of Jesus. I think he remembers how beautiful that was 60 years ago, leaning into the bosom of Jesus and feeling so safe right before Jesus was to be executed. He goes, that's where the son is with the father right now. So listen, John's like, you know what? I actually, he goes, if I could imagine, he's like in his 90s, so he's like, yeah, I could tell you the story. And I, I don't know, maybe I just, I hear him like 
Prince Philip now because the more I hear about him, because he's just he's salty and he's just full of vinegar, you know. And he's like, oh, let me tell you what. I got to I got to peek in that tent. And when I peeked in that tent, I saw grace and I saw kindness and love. And I saw truth that was unyielding. And I saw infinity and eternity in that God. And then you know what I saw? I realized what I was really seeing is I saw God. I saw God himself when I looked in that tent. It wasn't the shell. It was the one who dwelt inside. No wonder why Jesus would say then in John 14 when he spoke to Thomas, he's like, Thomas, how long have you known me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I look at that and I think, how amazing would this be to be able to peek in for a moment and see God? And then I realize, what's God doing now? According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says this, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Here's the crazy part. God is still choosing to pitch his tent in human flesh. It's just yours. The problem is you still dwell there too. And there is a battle over the alpha of the tent, isn't there? The moments where he wants to make things a certain way and you're like, how about we compromise? And worse yet, when he comes in, he goes, that's got to go and that's got to go and that's got to go. And you're like, my collection? I love that. That collection of memories, I love that stuff. And God's like, yeah, but it's not healthy and it's not good for you. And in this tent, there's this battle between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit of God in my own flesh that says, me, 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 me. And yet God says, I want to dwell in this tent like I dwelt in that tent of Jesus. I want people to be able to look, and if they looked in Siyoti, what they would see is kindness, grace. If they would look in Shema, they would see truth, unyielding truth. Unyielding truth, by the way, means when something's wrong, we say it's wrong because it's wrong. Even if we've done it, we're like, well, I'm not going to say that it wasn't wrong because I did it. It was wrong whether I did it or you do it. I mean, look in and see eternity. They peek into Bruno and they say, you know, it just seems like the more that I dig in, I just I see something beyond this moment there. I see this, this heaven that it smells like when I, when I start digging into that. They sit for a moment and you realize we Jones on the tent as if the tent were the issue. And we're constructing and reconstructing and, and painting and shaping and molding. And I'm not here saying you can't try to make yourself look nice, but the tent is temporary. And in that I warn you, there is a God who desires to manifest inside this so that when people look inside, even though we recognize man traditionally looks at the outer appearance, it's God who sees the inside. But sooner or later, someone sits with you and they get to see more than the outer frame. And it's more than just whether you like country or not, or coffee or not, or golf or not, or whether you play an instrument or whether you would ride a horse or whether you would ride a bus or whether you'd rather drive or, you know, whether you, it's like there's, there's all of these peripheral things that define people that know you at arm's distance, but then there are those that become friends and the friends are the ones who are no, who know more than the shell. 
they know they actually start to learn about the person that dwells inside the tent. And beloved, I just want to tell you that if God were to manifest so profoundly before, why wouldn't he manifest so profoundly in us? We just have to give him the right and the openness to do so. Because we really do have this amazing eternal treasure dwelling within us. And we're just earthen vessels, jars of clay. We're just sculpted clay that is going to go from this earth back down to this earth, the physical form. And praise God. But there is a you that gets to spend eternity with God and you actually get to start that now. That's the whole purpose of Jesus dying on the cross is to be with you, to pay for everything in between you. His purpose of his resurrection to give you a whole new life so he could come and dwell inside you and make his home, pitch his tent in you is the idea. So you could say, well, that was unimpressive compared to who he chose the last time. It doesn't have to be impressive because the moment the person looks inside, they're like, wow, look at what I saw. I saw everything I was looking for. Now, as we go to prayer, on this day, on this beautiful May day, 2017, our great, perfect, and infinite awesomeness has been poured into our tents with an abundance of grace and truth so that we can spill it on others, so it can pour out of the tent onto others. He's invested it in us. So let's not Jones on the tent. It's a temporary dwelling. Mobile, yes. Among others, yes, because God desires to dwell among. And he says, let me tabernacle among my own. Build me a sanctuary. Give me a sanctuary that I could dwell among people. And then he says, I choose Dan. That's a sanctuary. And I just want you to know, it's one of the reasons I'm giving God more space as I get older. Just give him a little bit more room. Uh, Anyways, our king has come. He's come to make his home in us. And you realize, the more that we say, stay out of the west wing, or whatever it is, because we think there's a part of our life that shouldn't be touched by him, is a part of our life that really doesn't get to get showered in the glory that God would rather. A part that doesn't get the warmth of his presence. The joy of being with him. Is there anything you really want to hold out from God? Is there any part of this tent that you really think, your tent that you really think in your life really is going to be made better by keeping God from it? Man, then we're robbing ourselves so much. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for the way that you reveal yourself in your word and the way that you've revealed yourself and who you are, your desire, your intent, your mission in Jesus. Father, I get the whole selfless, surrendered sacrifice when I look at the cross. And it's almost impossible for me to truly fathom that that's God hanging on the cross so that I could be his. You'd rather die than live without me. Oh, but Lord, I pray today for each of us that you'd open our hearts to that place, Lord, where we could say, oh, Lord, please manifest in this tent. Make yourself, make yourself at home. Make yourself at home in this tent so that when people would look and look inside, they would see. They would see grace and truth, kindness and love and joy and peace. 
And as you pour those in abundance, well then don't let, it, don't let this tent contain them, please. But rather, let them pour forth out of this tent so that others could come to that light and come to know what it's like to know you by the way they see the condition of this tent from the inside out. So Lord, I, t- I do pray that you would, that we would be willing, Lord, to open ourselves up, not just, Lord, to portions and say, Lord, there's parts of my life that I really want you to change and there are other parts I don't want you near. God, change that in our hearts so that we would let you have every part. Our love lives, our identities, our priorities, the things we fear to the things we crave. We lay them at your feet and say, God, we give you full right to search and seizure of the entirety of our lives. Make them yours, please. We recognize Jesus who died on the cross for us and you rose again on the third day and for that we just say thank you. And we say yes, Jesus. Yes. Yes to your gift. Yes to your life. And we may not understand everything, but we do know this much. That is an offer that is too silly to say no to. Well, too perfect to say it would be silly to say no to. And I pray that we would live lives now as you manifest in these tents, that others would be drawn to you. He's a God who desires to be among his own. Oh, please. Glorify yourself in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, today is communion. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us. On this day, we take a moment in introspection, but let's do this. I'm just going to grab my guitar, just play it acoustically, and have us sing a song, but let's pass the items together and hold on to them, and we'll partake of those together. But in this moment, just ask, is there anything kind of that's still a holdout somewhere in it. It's just been rough. And you know, I mean, it's like in the end of it all, consciously you think, it's just foolish to think that, that we could withhold anything from God and assume it's going to be better. But yet, some parts of us are almost addicted to doing so. Let the Lord speak to us in that area and let us let it go. Let's take a moment. Um, I, I should just, whoever that is, I suppose. And... Uh,
this life. The night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. The bread that was lemechani, the bread of affliction, the testimony of our own bitterness of sin and its bondage. And he took it. God's own hands took that bread and broke it in front of us and said, "Take this and eat. This is my body broken for you. And when you do this, remember me." This was not intended to be an empty ritual or sacrament. It was intended to be a remembrance ceremony where we remember that all of the bondage of our own sin and guilt was broken upon the body of Jesus Christ. And when we partake of this together, we do so in gratitude, knowing that it should be us. We should eat this in humility of knowing that the punishment of ourselves has been laid upon Him so that we could stand right with Him. Because He desires to be with us. And when we partake of this together, may we do so in the humility of knowing that God has paid for every sin. And in that we can not only be humble, but bold in our approach to God, knowing we have a high priest who was tempted in every way, yet without sin. 
so the sacrifice was perfect and yet he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses so when we partake of this together may we do so now in remembrance of Jesus